0: Um, welcome to the Green Iowa Pod. This I'm Cassie, and I also have Daniel here to discuss the history of U.S. environmental laws. I realize that that might not sound super exciting at first, but we're not just going to read off a list of laws and names and call it a day. That um, we have tried to put together a timeline of some of the significant laws and put it in the notes along with some resources if you're curious to learn more.
1: Yeah, if you're brave enough, if you're brave enough to click on the link, get ready. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the U.S. has a much more extensive environmental law history than you might guess, you know, but um, when do you think the environmental um, law, the first environmental law was made?
1: When do I think, I think there was a, there was a Harbor and Rivers Act sometime in the late, like 1890s something.
0: 1899, so just sneaking in there before the 1900s, that was the first, um, one. I think a lot of people wouldn't really expect this story to start in the 1800s because we associate the environmental movement with the 1960s and 70s. Um, But yeah, the Rivers and Harbors Act was passed in 1899. And what it basically says you can't just dump refuse into any navigable waters or their tributaries in the U.S. And you have to have a permit to dam a waterway or alter its course. And so the initial intent of this law was made around the idea of making waterways easier to navigate to help interstate commerce. And this is a really important point because Congress doesn't have the authority per the constitution to straight up pass environmental laws. Environmental laws have to be attached to something that Congress does have power over. So in this case, it was regulating economic activity. And it's important to keep this in mind because that's something that hasn't changed in the past 120 years. Um, So when we're thinking about modern day environmental laws and what might be passed, we have to remember uh, that context. but the Rivers and Harbors Act remains important. Um, it's still in effect today, although it's gone through some modern revisions. Um, and just because it was passed to facilitate interstate commerce doesn't mean that people back then didn't recognize the environmental benefits of not dumping refuse into the water they live nearby. Turns out people have always kind of thought that that was gross and maybe not the best idea. Um, so where next? Was this just an exception and we're going to skip to the 1960s now? Or is there an important bridge piece?
1: I'm guessing there's an important bridge piece.
0: Yes, there is. Um, so uh, let's talk about the early conservation movement, particularly in the progressive era. So we're looking at roughly 1850 to 1930 with a peak from about 1900 to 1930. I promise there's not gonna be that many dates. That's just, that's just because we're setting the timeline here. Um, so there were a few things that contributed to the conservation movement. The first was on a personal level, that a lot of people were moving to, from rural areas to cities for jobs. And so, so called natural areas were seen as an escape from the oppressive city atmosphere and as you know, transportation improved around the US. People from the city could travel back to the countryside to rest and relax. And that in turn caused people to start caring more about the environment which led to the creation of non governmental organizations committed to the environment, for example, the Audubon Society um, and the Sierra Club was actually created in 19, er, sorry, 1892 so actually a bit. Um, before the progressive era um and the other piece of context for this is the expansion into and the development of the western u.s so a lot of land management came into private hands and people started worrying about two things first this idea of waste that was happening so this was resources that were treated like they would never run out even though they would so what we now call non-renewable resources and then they also didn't like how the exploitation seemed to be happening only to benefit private individuals So the conservationists come around, and they want some federal oversight on the exploitation of natural resources. They also cared about protecting natural resources so they could be passed on to future generations. Um, This is where you get a lot of kind of talk about the striking beauty of the West and this idea of virgin untouched lands, which of course was inaccurate because there were people living on those lands for a long time, um, and it was just the West because the Westerners hadn't touched it. They saw it as this untouched land. Um, But this is where President Theodore Roosevelt comes in, because he was a really big supporter of the conservation movement. He was a sportsman, a hunter, and that's how he experienced the environment. I think a lot of people nowadays can view hunters as an antithesis to conservation, but that certainly doesn't have to be the case. And indeed, hunters and fishers were a really crucial part of the conservation movement, and are still an important part of the conservation movement in terms of funding um, for conservation. And as hunting and fishing has declined across America, It's actually raised questions about where we're going to get the funding for conservation movements. And I think it's interesting to kind of see the historical tiebacks to the current issues we're facing now. Um, So this is where we get the U.S. Forest Service from. Um, It's also where we get the Act for Preservation of American Antiquities of 1906, which is a real mouthful. But basically, this allows the president to set aside land for protection without having to go through Congress and create a national park which means that because it's by presidential order, it's also a lot easier to undo than a national park is. So if you guys heard about the Bears Ears controversy back in 2016, or sorry, 2017, that's what was going on there where Trump rolled back some of what Obama had said as national, um, uh, sorry, set aside as a... Okay, set aside as land for protection under the Antiquities Act, then Trump undid it, then Biden has now re-put that in place. So that kind of controversy and the uncertainty around whether the land around Bears Ears is protected or not is very vulnerable to who is president because it hasn't been passed by Congress. And so this is, again, we see something where what may have seen initially, like it happened like 125 years ago and laws back then might not really feel relevant to what we have now, but they're still actually exerting great effect on our current environmental predicaments. So we go back a little bit more in history. Um, There's a couple of other important laws. So in 1911, the Weeks Act passed, which really created the US national forest system as it's known today. And then in 1918, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act passed, which protects around 1,100 migratory species from the US uh, to Great Britain, which included Canada back when it wasn't an independent country. And this requires you a permit to hunt kill, sell, or capture any of the listed birds. So this is something that's very much still in effect today and is still a really powerful conservation law. Um, And so there wasn't a lot of the way of landmark environmental legislation passed until the 1960s, once we kind of get past the progressive era in the conservation movement. But I'm going to do a shout out to the Civilian Conservation Corps um, because we're AmeriCorps and also because this shows that even during the Great Depression, some environmental concerns were still being addressed. And now we finally make it to the 1960s where we're gonna bring Daniel in so it's not just me monologuing by myself to talk about some of the really important laws in the context that came around then.
1: Yeah, Um, so in the 60s, what I know about the 60s is in 1962, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring and that was sort of riding a wave of a lot of concern and that also kicked off a lot of concern too. And then the way in the '60s you have this wave of of new new laws like the the Clean Air Act I think in 1963, and then that followed up um, with with several other things. And uh, the next thing that comes to mind is in 1970 with the with NEPA, and NEPA is the National Environmental Policies Act, and this is basically like the thing the it's not it, it doesn't regulate anything in and of itself but it requires federal agencies to perform environmental like uh like impact statements like um uh, on like all all like big projects of like how is this going to impact the environment each of these projects whether it comes to infrastructure um defense um and whatnot transportation commerce that kind of stuff um, and then there's also um, environmental assessments, which um, fall into that category as well. And I didn't know if you wanted, cause that's like, that that's probably where one of the things you might be heading to. So if you want to yeah, talk absolutely. more about so,
0: it. Yeah, so you've done a really good job capturing a lot of the history of the 1960s and how some of our listeners might understand that. So we can just go into a little bit of detail about some of it. So, um, there's a lot of important environmental laws in the 1960s and 1970s. One of the ones that really interests me is the Multiple Use Sustained Yield Act of 1960, which again, these laws are not known for rolling off the tongue well. Um, but this law itself reads in part that it is the policy of Congress that the national forests are established and shall be administered for outdoor recreation, range, timber, watershed, and wildlife and fish purposes. And you may be saying, "Great, Cassie, you just quoted environmental law. Mean, I really get that, and that's a fun time." But the reason I'm reading this specifically is actually a really, really big deal that the U.S. Um, forests were being seen as not just about timber or not just about wildlife. It's this idea that um, we had to we have to kind of work towards having these multi-purpose spaces, and that was a really important way of thinking that has still impacted a lot of how we do conservation today. Um, And then we've got the Wilderness Act of 1964, which is one of my favorites because it went through 60 drafts and took eight years of work before it was signed by President Johnson. Um, So it created a definition of wilderness, which is one of those things that's interesting because you probably think you know what wilderness is and then you have to stop and think what that means like legally as a definition. Um, So it created that and it protected around 9 million acres of federal land, which is now up to 109.5 million acres that are protected. Um, And that's about 5% of US land. So what was the definition of wilderness? Um, It said a wilderness in contrast with those areas where man and his own works dominate the landscape is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. So yeah, what do you think about that definition of wilderness? How does it line up with what you think of, what comes to your mind when you think of wilderness?
1: Um, I think so. I think to put some perspective, I'll get, I think I, I want to put some perspective in this sort of like time um, era, and I will, I, I think, I think I will get to that point um, with this, but the policymaking and legislation in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't, it, it was more or less like a bipartisan sort of effort. There wasn't one party which was wholly embracing it and another party which was wholly um, like against it. Um, it was sort of like piecemeal. Like you had some Democrats and some Republicans who would support it, and and some who wouldn't, who would either, either um, value other things uh, like economics, commerce, and stuff over um, environmental policy. And now the conversation has shifted, where like the Democratic Party is is seen as embracing a lot of environmental policy, whereas the Republican Party is generally seen as like resisting that in favor of economic policy. Um, With that, however, um, even though it was more bipartisan, I think it was a lot more, the scope of it was a lot more narrow because we saw it through the lens of wilderness being something out there and something that like humans and and it, it sort of carried the general assumption that like humans and nature don't mix and so in order and like humans and nature are the combination is bad (laughs) um so in order to preserve these things we have to provide a separate space for these things to exist and i think that's where you were like what what you were just stating about like how i would define wilderness um would be a place i guess just off the top of my head of of sort of untampered with land, um, either like an old growth forest, a lake, uh, a desert, a, a, a large piece of land which is away from human civilization
0: yeah and I think that's probably what would come to a lot of people's mind and I think that point you made about this idea as humans and nature like being a bad thing to intermix and it being seen back then is really really true especially when you have this line that's untrammeled by man where man himself is a visitor who does not remain and once again this is really overlooking like all the indigenous people in the Americas who lived on that land and had a much different relationship with that land Um, right and I
1: I kind of wanted to to, um, point out that even though like I guess as a product of like our own culture whatever that means is we sort of have this idea and experience that when that human beings and nature aren't a good mix just because that's sort of been our experience however in indigenous cultures in different areas and different people that isn't always entirely true I I kind of wanted to point that out too like in in some instances yeah like we're we're not like the best tenants (laughs) but in other cases um the way of life naturally is is in harmony with um the natural world um sorry to interrupt but no
0: no i think that's a really great point and this this idea has impacted still how we think wilderness, think about wilderness to this day, because there's plenty of people in 2021 who would say that wilderness is something that's not touched by people uh, without kind of thinking about what that says about the relationship between people and nature. Um, so I think that's a really important point to make. Um, and I, I guess my concluding thought will be that um, to me, uh, wilderness has to do with level of development and disruption of the ecosystem. Um, that's partially because I spent five years of education being told that wilderness is not just what's untouched by people. Um, so after five years of that, you start to come up with a definition that does not have to do with that. Um, so I kind of think of it as development, limited development and treatment of the landscape that doesn't interfere with the basic processes of the ecosystem. And to me, this allows for more human interaction, but not necessarily of the kind that will be detrimental. So that's my thoughts. I think we both kind of put out some very important points there. Um, And then in the interest of time, we're going to move on to the 1970s. um, Which, which is just a bunch of laws. Um, So that was the National Environmental Policy Act, which Daniel mentioned a little bit ago, the Clean Air Act. The Clean Water Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Federal Incesticide, Fungicide, and Rhodicide Act, the End- uh, Endangered Species Act in 1973, and the National Forest Management Act in 1976. Plus, the EPA was created. I list out all those, not because I think you're going to memorize them and be able to recite them back to me, but just to kind of give an idea of really um, just the amount of kind of effort and time that was being put into environmental laws in the 1970s. Um, And I do want to shout out to the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which I swear isn't just because I really like uh, ocean animals. Um, It really came out of this concern about declining species in oceans, and interestingly, it took an ecosystems approach. So essentially, um, the Marine Mammals Protection Act was created to ensure that species continue to be a functioning part of their ecosystem. And this ecosystems approach was really new in terms of marine resource management, and that's why I think it's noteworthy. it's also interesting that all marine mammals get protected under the act. Some are also pro- protected by the Endangered Species Act, but even if they're not on the Endangered Species designation list, they still get protected, um, which is especially, I think, important because of oftentimes this comes up with um, military uh, doing certain experiments on certain areas, and then you have uh, maybe NGOs who want to um, who want to have those military activities move elsewhere. And this designation of all marine mammals as being protected is really important legally when it comes into arguing those cases. Um, And yeah, the other one that I think we should discuss is the National Environmental Policy Act, um, which is passed in 1969 and came into effect uh, January 1st, 1970. So as Daniel said, this is probably, I mean, it's really hard to rank importance, but I think most people would agree, this is one of, if not the most important, pieces of legislation that was passed um, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, It established the President's Council on Environmental Quality, and it also mandated that all federal agencies prepare environmental assessments and environmental impact statements to evaluate the potential impact of federal projects um, on land. And this includes anything that uses federal funding or has work performed by the government or includes federal government permits. So this definition of like what has required environmental impact assessments has kind of grown over time, and it comes out of court cases that evaluated NEPA, um, and it's been called by Congress our national, our basic national charter for protection of the environment, and also relating to something that Daniel said. Fun fact: NEPA passed unanimously in the Senate as a show of bipartisan support, which I think really does, um, which really does speak to to the. Um, to the yeah, there's no way that gets
1: passed with bipartisan support today <laughs>
0: yeah it's very difficult to get anything passed with full bipartisan support today um, and I think one of the things like um, during the 1980s we started to see this bipartisan support waned and this was due to two things it was first because of concerns in the West over government control of public land. so the government controls a lot of the land in the west and there were certain private landowners and people with different concerns and priorities who didn't like this government control over the land. And the second one was the addition of the addition of the cost-benefit analysis, which was added during the Reagan administration. Now on the face of it, cost-benefit analysis probably seems like a pretty good idea. You want to make sure when you're spending money that you're going to get the most use out of it and you're kind of picking the best projects, et cetera, and that you're evaluating, you know, you're doing a um, holistic approach to environmental acts that make sure that you're taking into account the different effects. The issue is the cost-benefit analysis is really, really, really difficult in the environment because it's difficult to evaluate the benefit of certain things. Like, what is the benefit of having an old growth forest? I mean, you can talk about it protects species, you know, it helps helps with air quality. You can make those arguments, but what about the fact that some people just like having old growth forests around? Some people just value certain things and it's very difficult to kind of put a number on how much people value a given ecosystem. So that um, was one of the other things that's made um, environmental legislation slow down a little bit. We did get one in 1980, which is the Superfund, um, which sadly has remained really underfunded. Um, 30% of the time taxpayers have had to fund the cleanups of these big polluters rather than the polluters themselves. Um, and then we get into them even more partisan gridlock in the 1990s and uh, that continues on. Yeah,
1: I think, I think there was a lot of, um, I don't know, just to sort of explain the, the political shifts in over time is that I think that once these acts were put in place, and people had experience in how the new agencies such as the EPA and the new legislations like how they were actually put in practice. it sort of set up inherently this um, either prescription or this regulation, which put government on one side and like business private interest on the other side. So it sort of like naturally created this dichotomy where you have one team against another team. Or if you have like government agencies that are friendly to business, you kind of have like this wink wink nod nod situation um and just like when it gets put into practice and so you as as these things as it sort of developed you sort of have i i remember nixon because nixon was actually like uh, uh, um i think he he set up the epa
0: he did and
1: he he was actually like early in his presidency he sort of championed some of the um believe it or not (laughs) uh some of like the environmental like um policies and acts um which were created and i think by the end of his tenure or like after he um after his presidency he sort of regretted any he sort of like took the other way and regretted his own actions on on that and i sort of like wonder why that is whether it was just sort of like purely political or if it was something that was more like fundamental to the processes. Um, Yeah,
0: I think this has to get into the question um, of, you know, you don't want to set this dichotomy where you say one side hates the environment, the other side loves the environment, because that's kind of not true. I think there would be people who, there's a lot of people who identify as caring about the environment. It's just a question of what methods um, they think is best to protect the environment and some people have a lot more trust in government and some people have a lot more trust in private businesses and we'll leave the listeners to decide um, where they fall in that or if somewhere along the spectrum um, because of course it's not just black and white and there's plenty of room in the middle but I think that is an important thing um, rather than just we don't want to just assume that there's a certain segment of people who don't care about the environment at all. I mean, there are, there's some people who really don't, but I don't think we wanna paint any one group broadly as not um, caring about the environment um, and just understand it more as a spectrum and a difference in terms of how people think um, these issues should be approached. But think, yeah, U.S. policy really started to stall in the 19th, sorry.
1: No, no, go ahead.
0: Uh, I was just gonna say that um, U.S. policy really stalled in the 1990s, but international environmental policy grew Um, So that will be our topic uh, for a future podcast, which is really exciting because I am not just a geek about U.S. environmental laws. I'm also a geek about international environmental laws. Cool,
1: cool, cool. I hope, yeah, I hoped I, uh, we were able to sum up some of that.
0: Yeah, I think we were. And uh, leave any questions or comments for us. We have a Facebook page and we have a Twitter. So if you have questions or interests. Uh, We'll share this link on those um, once it comes out, and you can ask away.
1: Sounds great. Was there anything else you wanted to add?
0: No, I think that's it for this this one.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for tuning in. Um, We will catch you next time. Thanks.
0: Bye.